On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. The wedding, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what is that concern to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Scholars are sure that Mark's gospel is the first written and the briefest. Mark really leans to the human side of Jesus, stressing his humanity at every point stressing that Thursday night in the garden when he prayed until great sweat drops like blood dripped from his brow. Mark describes the disciples as never quite getting it, partially understanding, then not understanding, partially understanding, then not understanding. Well, when John writes, he'll have none of that. John begins by connecting this whole story to Genesis 1 which begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, nothing was made that was not made by the Word, and the Word was made flesh. In John's Gospel, Jesus is much more very God, a very God. He knows everything, and he's in control of everything, and his disciples know who he is right from the beginning. Notice how he shows you some of those things. In this story, he points out the mother of Jesus was there. He refers to her a number of times in his gospel, but he never calls her by name. Not a single time. Because this story is not about Mary. Not as far as John's concerned. This story is about God and what God was doing in Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't name John either because the person writing this gospel was obviously a a disciple of that great apostle from long ago. He loved him better than his own life, and he couldn't imagine that Jesus did not love him better than he loved the other 11. So he simply refers to him from start to finish, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The synoptics have six major miracles or signs performed in the presence of the disciples, John adds a seventh. This story right here is found nowhere else in the Scriptures. There was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Cana, a little village about nine miles north and east of Jesus' hometown. Now, supposing Mary could walk a 20-minute mile, it still means it would have taken her three hours to get there. Jesus and the disciples had also been invited and were there, leading scholars to think this may have been a family relative or at least a close friend. Also, the fact that Mary is concerned when suddenly they've run out of wine. 
Let's look at the story for what I think John is trying to tell you and me. Number one, there's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Jesus, we have a problem. They've run out of wine. Dr. Fred Craddock, when he was still holding a distinguished chair of homiletics at Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, described uh, their inviting a well-known scholar from the northern part of our country to come down to Atlanta and give a series of lectures. After the first evening lecture, the next morning, Dr. Craddock had said, if you would like, I'll come down to the hotel and have breakfast with you and sort of brief you on how the day will go. The scholar said that would be fine. Dr. Craddock said, we were given menus. I let him order first. He said he really thought he would like two eggs over medium, that he'd love some bacon, like toast, black coffee, oh, maybe a little jelly on the side, he said. Dr. Craddock gave his order, and the waitress went away. She came back in a few moments, set the food down in front of Dr. Craddock's guest. Looked like the looks of the eggs. Bacon looked fine. Toast looked fine. Little jelly on the side there. And then he saw that glop of white stuff with a pad of butter right on the top. And he asked the waitress, what is that? And she said, that's grits. And he said, I didn't order grits. And she said, oh, you don't order grits. They just come. <laughs> For this new year, none of us would order sickness. None of us would order death. None of us would order war. None of us would order loss of job. None of us would order infidelity in marriage. None of us would order a teenager acting out, creating havoc in the whole family. Those things just seem to come. One to one family, one to another family. And they're always bad, really bad. And so on this third Sunday of a new year, we need to hear John saying, there was a problem. That problem was taken to Jesus. Number two, I think John wants us to hear the mother of Jesus say, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I know people who write me letters leave me emails on my computer who talk about problems. Sometimes I know they're a member of this church who haven't been here in months. When I mention I haven't seen you in a long time, well, we've had troubles. Why didn't you bring them to the church? Why didn't you come to church? Why didn't you join a Sunday school class? Why didn't you join a disciple Bible class? Why didn't you become a part of a prayer group? Why didn't you start doing the things you know you've been taught to do and see if things don't start working out quite differently? Do whatever he tells you. Last February, Gail and I and some of you were in Israel again. So when our regular vacation time came, uh, Gail and I decided that we would stay in our own country instead of going abroad. 
I was about six weeks from having had knee surgery at that point as well. So we went to New York. I mean, really went to New York to see as many of the great museums as we could. We saw two plays. We saw two Yankee baseball games. We really had a wonderful time. Then we caught a fast train south to Washington, D.C. We had uh, made reservation at a hotel just outside the main part of the city where the rates were a little bit less. So every morning then we got up and ate breakfast, caught a bus to the nearest subway station, which turned out to be the Pentagon. So for eight days, every morning, we rode a bus to the Pentagon subway station. And as we came back there late afternoon to catch our bus back to the hotel, we saw this magnificent building again and again and again. I was remembering the Pentagon when we came to the 10th anniversary of 9-11. We usually focus on New York City. Gail and I had gone to the site while we were there the week before because there were far more who died in New York City than died in Washington, but what happened in Washington was also tragic. I remember reading about a police officer, a Washington, D.C. police officer, who was working that morning when suddenly he saw this huge passenger plane dropping lore and lore over the city of Washington, D.C., and then crashing into the Pentagon thousands of gallons of jet fuel creating this huge ball of fire and then black impenetrable smoke he'd followed as quickly as he could in his patrol car parked jumped out ran into this building and as he started running at first only to encounter darker and darker smoke finally that he got down on his own hands and knees to crawl under as much of that as he could he kept saying as loudly as he could if you can hear me Come to my voice. If you can hear me, come to my voice. He was later acknowledged as having led eight people out of that ball of fire and smoke who heard his voice and moved toward him where he could lead that person to safety. If you know one right thing to do, if you know one good thing to do, do what he tells you. Number three. John goes into great detail about these big jars holding waters of purification. Now, if you've never been around Orthodox Jews, the significance of their being made out of stone may not immediately be apparent to you. But if you know Orthodox Jews and the way they celebrate and practice their faith, then the fact that the jars are made of stone becomes very significant. Because you see, Orthodox Jews hold that pottery is porous and can be contaminated. Uh, two of Gail's and my dearest friends in this city are Rabbi Charles and Nancy Sherman. Uh, we've had dinner in their home more than once. And they're glad for us to drink out of their cups and eat from their forks and spoons and their plates. Not so with Orthodox Jews. Gail and I were at a large dinner gathering up at what is now the Hyatt Hotel up the street. We were having an international symposium on Christians and Jews. We got seated with four Orthodox Jews from New York City. And they asked quietly, but very succinctly, if they could have glass cups, not pottery. 
pottery was considered porous. It might have been in the mouth of a Gentile at some point. They wanted glass. And when it was time for us to start on our salad, they didn't want knife, fork, spoon that might have been in the mouth of a Gentile. They wanted new silverware still in the wrapper. That's what they got. These jars holding the water, John tells you how big they were. 120 gallons of water. He says, holding the water. Jesus said, top them off. They poured right to the brim. I think that means so that no one could later say, well, somebody poured a little wine in with the water. No, it was water, only water, right to the brim. In February, when we were again in the house of Caiaphas, our guide pointed out in what you and I would call the cellar of the home, the basement of the home, this the ceremonial bath place. And she pointed out how the steps going down into the water were separate from the steps coming out of the water so that one who had been into the water and now was ceremonially clean would not be touched by one going into the water who was not yet ceremonially clean. What is John telling you and me? That the God of Jesus was Israel's God? But from the Jewish waters of purification is coming new wine. For us Gentiles, new wine Something really special is taking place here. Pay close attention because your reaction, your attitude is going to mean everything. Scott Walker has written that when he was a boy growing up, some mornings nothing seemed to be going right. First of all, he didn't want the alarm to have gone off, time to go to school couldn't seem to find his favorite shirt that he particularly wanted to wear on Tuesday. It was not there till Thursday. If his mother had cooked oatmeal, he really wanted an egg. If she'd scrambled an egg, he really wished he had oatmeal. You know, one of those days. And he said his mother would always look at him and say, Scott Walker, you must have gotten out of the wrong side of the bed. Go back and try again. And I'd say, oh, Mom, go. She said, go. And sometimes she would follow me down the hall to see if I actually put myself back in the bed and rolled out the other side. And she'd said, that, that's better. And he said, of course, I knew what she meant. Your attitude stinks. I don't like your attitude. There's a different way to start this day. How about working hard at that other kind of attitude? I've cooked I've washed. I've ironed. There is food. There are clothes. There's a school bus coming. Change your attitude. And then Scott has written, After I became an adult, I read a book written by Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband was a young missionary who had flown with a group from his church, landed on the sandbar of a river in remote Ecuador, where some believed there were Indian tribes, Native Americans, South Americans who had never seen Western Europeans, and they came storming out of the woods and killed her husband and all the others right there on the sandbar. 
she was left with a six-month-old child. But that church did not give up. They kept sending another plane and another plane and another plane until that group of people came to believe. These were people who had come in peace, who wanted only the best for them, only the best for them. But this is what Scott read in her book. There are always enough things to be thankful for that are given and always enough things not given for which you can complain. Meaning, you get to choose. You want to be a complainer? You want to be one who sees God at work doing significant things and be grateful. Those who've been in my Sunday school class know that I've looked at this Gospel of John many times before. One time I got out my big concordance to the Bible. A concordance to the Bible is as big as an unabridged dictionary. It's huge because every word that appears in the Bible is in the concordance. And not only is it there, but any word that appears in the Bible has every time that word is used in the Bible listed. So a word like love, you know, would be hundreds of times. Well, I looked up the word believe. John uses it 96 times. 96 times. He comes to the very end of his gospel and said, I could have written many more stories about Jesus, but I've written these that you may come to believe he is the Messiah of God and believing have life in his name. This changing of water into an amazing new wine, better than this group had ever drunk before, was the first sign done in the presence of the disciples, and they believed in him. Elizabeth Sherrill has written that when our big days come in Christianity, she doesn't want to let them go. She said, when Easter comes, we've been through this long season of Lent where those of us who are reading the appropriate scriptures and praying appropriate prayers have gone through the anguish, the suffering, the death of our Lord. And then we've come back on Easter Sunday and we have trumpets and we have white lilies. We have a choir law filled with people singing to the glory of God. I don't want it to end. And Christmas, she said, I know that not everyone who decorates his or her yard goes to church the following Sunday. I know that not everyone who's crowding the malls to buy presents is going to end up in church on Christmas Eve night. But some of us are. We're going to read those scriptures again. We're going to sing those Advent hymns. We're going to come to Christmas Eve services. I don't want it to end then so quickly. It's over. It's over. She said recently, we'd had this marvelous holiday with all the poinsettias and the candles. We'd had Mary and Joseph, shepherds and wise men, and I wanted to stay with them. And it was time to go back to work. I knew when I got to my desk, I'd have 50 emails. I'd have 25 voicemails. 
I'd have a stack of mail the postman had brought. I'd have columns to write. But as I sat down in my chair and turned on the computer, I heard this little voice say, Elizabeth, where have you been? I've been waiting here 